theme of peace today. Actually, that's what the ladies focused on for the ladies' brunch. Um, they uh, each year do a different theme, and, and um, it was a wonderful time. I got to observe, and thank you so much for everybody who worked so hard uh, to put that together, to be such a blessing to everybody, and to, to share the, the goodness and peace of Christ. So I'm just very grateful for you and, and, and for that day. So thanks. But we're going to be focusing on peace a little, a little more. I don't know if we can get enough of peace. So uh, we're going to dig into God's Word. We'll be in John chapter 16, just one verse today to focus on, 1633. Um, so if you have your Bible, you can turn there. And uh, the question, I guess, that this message uh, asks or addresses is, is, do you need peace? Does life get stressful for you? Is life stressful right now? The, the sad irony of the season is that often it's one of the most stressful times of year uh, when we should be experiencing the reality of the Prince of Peace and His incarnation. So what is your remedy for stress? What do you do to address stress in your life? What are your therapies? What are your remedies? Uh, there's all sorts of remedies. I, I actually remember one that didn't work too well when I was a kid and I was stressed out and crying and upset, one of the adults in my life, sometimes, not always, but sometimes would say, keep crying about it and I'll give you something really to cry about. Um, it got me to be quiet, but I don't think it helped my stress a whole lot. It probably made it worse. But uh, there's truth there, of course. Sometimes a remedy can be like, just put things in perspective, right? Stop getting so upset. Um, but there's all different remedies that are out there. Things that may help, things like a good night's sleep or good nutrition, vitamins and supplements and exercise or breathing, trying to avoid negative situations, be in places where you can relax and rest. Those are all remedies of some sort or therapies for stress and sure they all have their place. What I want to do today is remind us and perhaps introduce us to the ultimate remedy for stress, the peace that we're given in Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at John chapter 16, verse 33. We're going to dig into this verse and learn about this peace that's given to us. This is a peace given to the disciples when they were facing terrible things, even loss of life. And so it's a peace that's robust. It's deep. It works. It's a remedy that is behind any other remedy ultimately as the ultimate and only remedy, the peace that we're given in Christ. So let's pray and then we'll look at God's word and trust that he will speak to us and teach us about his peace. So Lord, thank you, Lord, that you are our peace and you give a peace that comes to address us when we feel stressed and when we face hardship. It's a peace that is so substantial it can meet us in our deepest need, in our most difficult situation. So we thank you because you are good and you love us and you've given us your word and you've given us your spirit to dwell among us and in us and to teach us. So we pray right now, Holy Spirit, come and teach us about your peace. Take from the Father and the Son and make it known to us that we might live in this peace that we might share this peace, that we might glorify you through it as well. Help me, Lord. I want to serve you well and serve you people. You are worthy of so much more than I could ever give. I pray you'd help me to give my best by your grace so that you might be shown and your truth shown in our time, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. 
One simple verse, Jesus says in John 16, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. I just want to dig into this verse. I want to look at its wonderful promise that we can experience a peace greater than the trials of life. We can experience a peace greater than the trials of life. I want to look at the place of peace. I want to look at the paradox of peace. And I want to talk about the practice of peace. So first, the the place of peace. Jesus says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. Of course, the place is in Jesus. That's the key thing here. But before he says that, it's in him. He says, I have said these things to you. What are these things? What are the things that Jesus has said to his disciples and really through the word of God to us? Well, it's all that preceded this verse. In particular, in the Gospel of John, and the men are learning this as we've been going through the Gospel of John in our men's groups uh, on Saturday mornings and Tuesday nights. Uh, as we've read through John, there's this shift in John after chapter 12. There, his ministry up to that point is very public. He's declaring his, the truth publicly and throughout Israel. And by and large, there's rejection of the message. And in chapter 13, he turns to his disciples and starts preparing them and teaching them and, and helping them. Um, and so he starts to teach them and prepare them for his departure. It's, it's leading up to the point where he is going to be taken from them uh, by taking prisoner and then put to death and buried. And then eventually as well, he's going to be taken from them bodily by his ascension into heaven. And so he's preparing the disciples for this reality. He's trying to help them understand it. And so he's saying all these things to prepare them. So that's what he means when he says, I have said these things to you. It's referring to all that's been said in chapters 13 through 16. I counted as I went through actually, 26 different things, different promises that Jesus said to his disciples in those chapters. 26 different times where he said some truth that was important for them to get some promise of provision and blessing. 26 different times. I think we have a list to project. So he goes through these things. He says they're clean in chapter 13. Uh, they're to be known by love. They're to be distinguished by love. That there are many rooms in the, in the villa of God. And that he's preparing a place for them. That he's the way, the truth, and the life. Uh, that they've seen the Father through uh, him, that they will do greater works than he's done, that they will ask and receive, that the helper will be given to them, uh, that they are loved by the Father, the Father will make himself known to them, that he will make his home with them, that he will give uh, the helper to teach them, that they will know peace unlike the world, uh, 1427, that they will be more fruitful, that they are clean already, he says that again, that they will bear much fruit, that they will ask and it will be done, that that they are loved by Jesus, that they will know his joy, that they are his friends, that they are, have been chosen by Christ, they have been appointed for producing good fruit, that the helper is coming again, that they will be guided into Christ's truth, that they will have their sorrow turned to joy, that they will ask and receive again, and that the Father loves them. All these promises are things that he's said up to this point. All these promises are found 
in Jesus. They are meant for his disciples. They are meant for any true believer. All the promises of God, beyond just these 26, all the promises that are in Scripture are yes and amen in Jesus. And so he says, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Jesus is the focal point. Jesus is the fulfiller of all these promises. He is the provider of all these promises. He is the conduit of all these promises. And there's way more than 26. Charles Spurgeon, the famous 19th century pastor, wrote many things. He wrote a book called Faith's Checkbook. And it has a different promise for every day of the year. It's meant to be a devotional that you read every day. And it's teaching on some promise of God. 365 promises from the Word of God by Charles Spurgeon. I encourage you to consider that book. But Charles Spurgeon could have written hundreds of such books about the promises of the things that we have in Christ. The things that Christ has accomplished and now through Him, through simple faith in Him are ours as well. We have many promises. These things that Jesus teaches us abound. He has said these things so that in Him we may have peace. The basis for our peace is the limitless well, the limitless source of these promises in Jesus. And we have every reason to put our full confidence in these promises. We know these things are true. Because first, His Word says so. His living and active Word, the very Word of God, the eternal Word, the ultimate truth, says so. That is our ultimate ground of truth and assurance. Second, of course, the Spirit of God testifies to us from the word, that these things are so. Third, the witness of the church through the ages testifies that these things are so. The church has experienced these promises and has produced fruit and shown that these things are so. Fourth, the historicity of Jesus of Nazareth, his life, his death, his resurrection, and the witnesses with that are testimonies to the truth of these things. Christ, fifthly, has fulfilled so many promises. Thousands of years, made thousands of years before Christ, He has fulfilled these things to testify to the reliability of the Word. Six, all creation loudly proclaims the reality of God, the necessity of an infinite and eternal Creator who's the giver of every good gift and the fountain of all truth. Seventh, and finally, and perhaps most importantly, the person and work of Christ assures us of these promises. Who He is and what He has done says that these promises, that these truths are real and they're for us. Paul says it this way in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? That Christ in His person and work, has been given up for us. The Father did not spare His Son, but gave Him up. Gave Him up for us all. Isaiah 53, given hundreds of years before Jesus, speaks so accurately and truthfully about Christ. It says this, He was despised, 
and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus has been given and he gave himself voluntarily in cooperation, in union with his Father and the Spirit, gave himself up in this precious and perfect life on the cross for you and for me to satisfy holy justice, to reconcile us with God. The, the greatest need for peace in our lives is not the peace of outward circumstances, but the peace of our broken relationship with God, settling that broken relationship, reconciling us with God, the creator of all, the one who will judge all things, who is holy and perfect, whom we stand before on our own condemned. And the wonderful good news is that God did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. He has loved us so much that he's given his only son, the one and only, the unique son, God the Son in the flesh, Jesus of Nazareth, the perfect one for us in our place to pay for our sins. That justice might be satisfied. That God could welcome us as sons and daughters forgiven and holy in Jesus. He's a holy God. He cannot sweep these things under the rug. He cannot just ignore it. He cannot just look at the good side and, not, and, and somehow forget that we have all sinned against Him. We have all rejected His holy law. We have all failed to love Him with all of our being and love one another as ourselves. He must deal that, with that justly and He does so in the Son pouring out justice and holy wrath on Christ who was given up on the cross for you. That in Him, through faith in Him, your sins are forgiven and you are counted righteous. He is treated as the criminals that we are in our sin, that, that in Him we might be treated as the heir that He is. Treated as sons and daughters. It's an amazing exchange. And so Paul can say in Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up. If, if he did not spare his very son, the most precious entity in all of creation, but gave him up for you, how will he not with him give you all things that you truly need? How will he not give to you all the promises that Christ provides for us? How will he not give to you the peace that passes understanding, the peace that overcomes this world? These things are all found in Him, in Jesus. That is the place of peace. I know we probably all have our own places of peace that we think of. And, and certainly 
it's part of God's goodness that there are places of peace. God is a God who wants to give us real peace, and, and he makes that peace known through his creation, and so it's legitimate to have a place of peace, but, but there's ultimately no ground in any of those places of peace because they are only places of peace because the giver of all gifts makes them so. And so we must be careful to think about where is our happy place, and why is it our happy place. For me, I, I have different ones, but but for different reasons, my happy place sometimes I think of is my childhood home. Um, I have a picture of it. I grew up in Chelmsford. There it is. And even just looking at it, I have happy feelings. Um, we lived there till I was eight years old. And almost all my memories of that place are just happy memories. Um, there, uh, it was a brand new development at the time, back way back in the previous century. Um, and... Uh, and it was all young families, so we had all, we were all like the same age. We had woods, we had trees to climb, we had a pond in our backyard to skate on, a hill to sled down, we had tons of friends. Um, it was a place where we could just be outside and be safe, and it was just a wonderful season of life. And then we moved away when I was eight, so that's probably part of why it's preserved in my memory, because that was kind of a, an innocent time when I was little went on to another town where the kids were all mean, at least it seemed to me that they were mean. And so I tend to think of this as my happy place, but, but in and of itself, there's no peace there necessarily. There's no happy place ultimately apart from the Lord. And so what we ought to do, I think, as we think about our happy places and so forth, is to realize that that's meant to point us to the provider of true peace. And the provision of true peace in Jesus, that in him is ultimately our happy place, is our place of peace in him. The one who died for us on the cross and rose again victorious over sin and death in him and through simple faith in him. That is our place of peace and we can take that with us wherever we go. And that can shape different places where we go because we're grounded in the ultimate place of peace, Jesus alone. If you try to ground your peace somewhere else, it will ultimately end up being a mirage in your hands that evaporates. It won't work. He himself is our peace. And we know that ultimately because of his death for us and his resurrection. That is the place of peace, Jesus. Jesus goes on to teach here, I said these things to you that in me you may have peace. He wants us to have peace. He expects us to have peace, by the way. This is his intention here. Because of these things, we are to experience a sense of well-being, a sense of peace, a sense of calm and ease, even in difficult situations. And that's what he addresses next, the paradox of peace. He says to us, in the world you will have tribulation. In him you have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. The New American Standard says it this way, these things I have spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. Do the next verse is the New American Standard. In the world you have tribulation. Actually, that's closer to the original language. It's the present tense verb. It's, it's not a future tense. It just says, this is the reality. In me you may have peace. You have a peace available. That's a true peace. This is what you're going to get in the world. In the world you have Tribulation. That's just the reality. And so this is the paradox of peace that, that Jesus offers a peace that is to be experienced while we're in the world where we have tribulation. That's the promise of this world. Tribulation. 
That's what's going on. That's the reality. And he's saying this to his disciples, right? And he's about to be arrested, imprisoned, tortured on the cross, put to death, and buried. And then later on, he's going to be with them. They're going to rejoice in that, but then he's going to ascend. He won't be with them bodily. And then they're going to go on, these 12 apostles, 11 at the time, 12 later. And from what we know, all, well, at least 11 of the 12 are going to die a martyr's death. I imagine this verse resonated with the apostles while they faced their martyrdom. I have said these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. This is the reality of this world. That we have trouble. And we've had a long history of trouble. And we have a present history of trouble. And it comes in different forms. Persecution is a reality for most of the church throughout most of the world, throughout most of history. Just in this past year, actually, there have been 340 million Christians living in a place where they experience high levels of persecution. We have a map to show you that shows persecution. The darker red places are the places of highest persecution. 340 million Christians live in places where there's serious persecution. I would say everywhere, genuine believers face some level of persecution, even if it's just being shunned or ignored, shamed or something like that, but serious persecution. For 340 million Christians this past year, for, uh, 20, 2020 actually, 4,761 Christians were killed for their faith. Almost 4,500 churches and other Christian buildings were attacked. Over 4,000 believers were detained without trial, arrested, sentenced, or prisoned, imprisoned as Christians. This is the reality. In this world, you have trouble, Jesus says. To be a believer is to have trouble and is to welcome extra trouble because of your faith. That's the reality. We are sheltered from this, and I'm not sure if it's always good for us because we have expectations that are unrealistic. Jesus promises that this is the reality. And this is on top of the regular trouble of this world. I'm sorry to, to be a Debbie Downer here, but I want you to understand this reality that we might find something to stand on. But to face this reality, the, the trouble, there's a the trouble of Christian persecution. This is on top of normal trouble. If you could show the next picture, the next graph. Here's our two, I'm sorry if you're not a graph person, but, and I try not to be too graph, I'm an engineer by training, but anyhow, the, the one on the left is the causes of death in 1900, and it's also how many deaths per 100,000, so that column's pretty tall, and down the bottom are things like uh, infectious diseases, things like um, pneumonia, um, other infectious diseases. So, actually, I need to see it better. Um, so, tuberculosis, right? You see that? Um, I wish my eyes were better. Pneumonia, 
Uh, gastrointestinal infections, those are the prime causes of death back then. Those big common, the big uh, blocks down the bottom. Those are virtually eliminated now and there's other things. So that's a good thing. There's not, those, those sorts of things are terrible things, terrible ways to die. There are other things. And, and so 1900 to 2010, the column's a lot shorter. That's really good. There's, the death rate's a lot lower. And it's not things like pneumonia, but it's other things, right? Cancer, heart disease, um, stroke, those are the main causes of death. So the rate's lower, and there are other ways that people die. What's the death rate in terms of percentages? Yeah, it's still 100%. In this world, you have trouble. People don't die by just going to sleep, and then they're gone. I mean, if they do, it's because of some other cause. Their heart stops or a stroke or something. People don't ride chariots to heaven, usually. Only a few get to do that. Most people get sick and die. And we live in a wonderful age, and I don't mean to, to create a, a, another view. I think the Christian view is part of the drive to find cures for diseases, to bring blessing to people, to extend life and quality of life, that in that life we might know the kindness of God and love Him more and love one another more. So let's do that. Let's be committed to that. I'm not against that in any way. But we will not find heaven, the new creation, in this world. This world at best, yes, will be influenced by these things, but will never become these things. We'll never remove the curse of sin in this creation. That will only come when Christ returns. And one of the problems is living in this world that's so blessed is we tend to think that in this world we won't have trouble. What's going on? I've got trouble. What sort of deal is this? There are people who walk away from God because they encounter trouble. What did you expect? Jesus promised trouble. This world is full of trouble. You won't get out of this world without going through trouble. That's the reality. Yes, life is good in many ways, but also life is difficult and hard and full of trouble. That's the promise. That's the reality here. That's what Jesus wants us to know. It's the paradox of peace because he comes to bring us peace amidst trouble. Now, I don't know what sort of troubles you or I will have specifically. And we're not to live focusing on that. But we need to live soberly in the reality that in this world you have trouble. Not to be surprised. Finally, let's talk about the practice of peace. Because Jesus doesn't leave us there. He doesn't leave us in that promise in this world you'll have tribulation he wants us to have peace he says but take heart I have overcome the world but take heart I have overcome the world the King James says but be of good cheer the good news translation says but be brave and I think that's a really good rendition of what Jesus said in the original language it's not so much being encouraged like Okay, I'm happy. Uh, that can have its place. Uh, it's not necessarily 
a mood, though that has its place. It's a perspective. It's an orientation. It's a courageousness. It's being brave in this world full of trouble. It's being brave as we face these things to deal with them in a very different way than the world might. Be brave because I have overcome the world. And Jesus' word for overcome there is I have conquered the world. Is that, that's maybe a better way to say it. It's, it's not just simply I've overcome the adversity. No, I've done more than overcome the adversity. I'm the conqueror of this world. I'm in charge of this world now. I rule over this world through my death and resurrection. I'm in charge. I'm the conqueror. So all this stuff, all this tribulation, it's under me. I'm the king. I'm the conqueror. Be brave in this world. In the face of these difficulties. Because Jesus is the victor. He wins. And we in Him win through adversity. See, Jesus didn't win excluding adversity, but He died on the cross. He suffered and died and He rose again. And the Scripture again and again promises us that we too will suffer. And through suffering will be made more like Jesus and will overcome. So His victory comes through the tribulation. Not excluding the tribulation. So let's not have a, a false and bad theology of this victory and miss this point. Instead, let us be brave, for he has conquered this world. And so Paul can say in Romans 8 we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And we know that for those who love God, um, that's what I just said. It, then verse 31, If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? For the believer now, because Jesus has conquered this world, He's in charge, all things are now used ultimately for our good. Even the tribulation, even the difficulty, even if it's persecution or sickness. The king is over that, using it for good in our lives, to form us more and more into the image of Christ, to teach us more and more that we are desperately needy for Jesus. You know, the, the, one of the greatest miracles in suffering is simply surviving the suffering with your faith intact. It's a powerful miracle, because there are so many things in suffering that work against that, that in our flesh we want to deny the Lord. And I think one of the biggest things he does through that is to teach us to hang on to him. And to show through that that there's gold, there's genuine faith, even though it may be the size of a mustard seed, it's genuine and precious, and so we hang on. So never diminish that in suffering. Just simply to keep on believing is a powerful testimony to the power of God in your life. There's all sorts of purposes he, he may have in it all. But it's used for our good. It's used to glorify God through our lives. It's used to increase our rewards in heaven. He uses all things for good for believers. And so, be brave. I have conquered this world. We can be brave like our brothers and sisters are throughout the world as they face severe persecution. We can be brave like the people in this story, the 
Korean believers in the Jimri Methodist Church. Tim Kimmel tells the story. Shortly after the turn of the century, Japan invaded, conquered, and occupied Korea, turn of the last century. Of all their oppressors, Japan was the most ruthless. They overwhelmed the Koreans with a brutality that would sicken the strongest of stomachs. Their crimes against women and children were inhuman. Many Koreans lived today with the physical and emotional scars from the Japanese occupation up until World War II. One group singled out for concentrated oppression was the Christians. The conquerors started by refusing to allow churches to meet and jailing many of the key Christian spokesmen. One pastor in a town outside of Seoul persistently entreated his local Japanese police chief for permission to meet for services. His nagging was finally accommodated and the police chief offered to unlock his church for one meeting. It didn't take long for word to travel. Committed Christians starving for an opportunity for unhindered worship quickly made their plans. Long before dawn on that promised Sunday, Korean families throughout the wide area made their way to church. Their voices of praise could not be concealed inside their little wooden frame sanctuary. Song after song rang through the open windows into the bright Sunday morning. For a handful of peasants listening nearby, the last two songs this congregation sang seemed suspended in time. It was during a stanza of Nearer My God to Thee, in Korean I presume, that the Japanese police chief waiting outside gave the orders. The people toward the back of the church could hear them when they barricaded the doors, but no one realized that they had doused the church with kerosene until they smelled the smoke. The dried wooden skin of the small church quickly ignited. Fumes filled the structure as tongues of flame began to lick the baseboard on the interior walls. The good pastor knew it was the end. With a calm that comes from confidence, bravery, he led his congregation in a hymn whose words served as a fitting farewell to earth and a loving salutation to heaven. With smoke burning their eyes, they instantly joined as one, one to sing their hope and leave their legacy. Their song became a serenade to the horrified and helpless witnesses outside. Their words also tugged at the hearts of the cruel men who oversaw this flaming execution. Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? And then at the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away, it was there by faith I received my sight, and now am happy all the day. The strains of music and wails of children were lost in a roar of flames. The bodies that once housed life fused with the charred rubble of a building that once housed the church. But the souls who left singing finished their chorus in the throne room of God. My friends, I don't think, I don't know, but I don't think any of us will face such circumstances, perhaps. But we have the same promise that our brothers and sisters in that church had. In this world, you have trouble. But take heart. Be brave. I have conquered this world. And nothing this world throws at you and take that away. In Jesus, we win and will win.
Because he has one for us. And so we can be at peace even in tribulation, even in difficulty such as this. We are to be a people marked by this peace. The church should be a place where, where people experience peace and reinforce that peace for one another and pursue that peace. And so this is connected to the reality of this peace we have in Jesus through his life and death and presence with us. It's to be lived out in how we relate to one another. And so Paul, in Ephesians chapter 2, says, For he himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in the flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Now he's addressing the Ephesians and he's speaking of Jews and Gentiles, but this applies to all peoples. And he goes on to say, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. He takes warring parties and in the cross reconciles them. Verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, you Gentiles, and peace to those who were near, you Jews. And so we're told in Colossians, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful Jesus victory over the world must be shown in the lives of his people as they live in peace with one another because of this peace and so let me read to you the rest of the story about the Jimri church and what unfolded after this atrocity. Tim Kimmel goes on to say, for some of the relatives of the victims, this carnage was too much. Evil had stooped to a new low. I think we have a picture of the, the massacre, but not the one before that, the picture before that. There we go. Sorry. Um, evil had steeped stooped to a new low, and there seemed to be no way to curb their bitter loathing of the Japanese. In the decades that followed, that bitterness was passed on to a new generation. The Japanese, although conquered, remained a hated enemy. The monument the Koreans built at the location of the fire not only memorialized the people who died, but stood as a mute reminder of their pain. It wasn't until 1972 that any hope came. A group of Japanese pastors traveling through Korea came upon the memorial. You can put up the next picture. When they read the details of the tragedy, and the names of the spiritual brothers and sisters who had perished, they were overcome with shame. Their country had sinned, and even though none of them were personally involved, they still felt a national guilt that could not be excused. They returned to Japan, committed to right the wrong. There was an immediate outpouring of love for their fellow believers. They raised 10 million yen. $25,000 at the time, a lot of money. The money was transferred through proper channels and a beautiful white church building was erected on the site of the tragedy. When the dedication service for the new building was held, a delegation from Japan joined the relatives and special guests. Although their generosity was acknowledged and their attempts at making peace appreciated, the memories were still there. Hatred, 
preserves pain. It keeps the wounds open and hurts fresh. The Koreans' bitterness had festered for decades. Christian brothers or not, these Japanese were descendants of a ruthless enemy. The speeches were made, the details of the tragedy recalled, and the names of the dead honored. It was time to bring the service to a close. Someone in charge of the agenda thought it would be appropriate to conclude with the same two songs that were sung the day the church was burned. The song leader began the words, To near my God to thee. But something remarkable happened as the voices mingled on the familiar melody. As the memories of the past mixed with the truth of the song, resistance started to melt. The inspiration that gave hope to a doomed collection of churchgoers in a past generation gave hope once more. The song leader closed the service with the hymn at the cross. The normally stoic Japanese could not contain themselves. The tears that began to fill their eyes during the song suddenly gushed from deep inside. They turned to their Korean spiritual relatives and begged them to forgive. The guarded, calloused hearts of the Koreans were not quick to surrender, but the love of the Japanese believers, not intimidated by decades of hatred, tore at the Koreans' emotions. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away. One Korean turned toward a Japanese brother, then another, and then the floodgates holding back, a wave of emotion let go. The Koreans met their new Japanese friends in the middle. They clung to each other and wept. Japanese tears of repentance and Koreans' tears of forgiveness intermingled to bathe the sight of an old nightmare. Heaven had sent the gift of reconciliation and peace to a little white church in Korea. This is the reality of the peace that Jesus gives us. It's a powerful peace. It's a peace that makes us brave in a world full of trouble. It's a peace that empowers us to extend forgiveness and peace to others. It's a peace that overflows in our lives that we might be a people of peace as we live together in the reconciliation we have in Christ. Let me close with our Savior's words. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have tribulation. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Lord, we thank you for these words and for what they mean. Teach us about your peace, we pray. Amen.